0: Coming up this hour, the Big Ten canceled their football season, and should evangelicals be looking for more power? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, happy to have you with us today today. Remember, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com, and you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, Ian, I'm hoping we can get through this show today without needing to run into our basements. That would be be a win after yesterday's show. (laughs) I mean,
1: the good thing is I'm always in my basement, so I I am protected My work day.
0: (laughs) Yesterday was crazy, in fact. Uh, I was reading on NBCnews.com uh, that over 1 million people in the Midwest lost power yesterday. There's still, uh, we got an email from our mayor saying that apparently there's still 500 people in Downers Grove, our town without power. Wow. And uh, that really was crazy. I think the most uh, unbelievable thing that I saw yesterday, you and I both got the picture while we were on air, was that picture at College Church in Wheaton uh, right. with their steeple over. It. I think that was something went right down, uh, right down through the middle of Wheaton there.
1: Yeah, it was pretty frightening. It's uh it's weird because like as it was happening, you know, some people are posting photos of trees that were completely uprooted. And then other people were like, Did it already happen? Did it miss us? Did it, like it was it was very strange how many cities in like a twenty five mile radius had vastly different
0: experiences of that storm. It was very odd. It was odd. In fact I remember well, you and I were doing the show and it, it blew past us. And then my wife got home and all the stuff. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait, it's sunny outside now. <laughs> right, right. Oh, everything's fine. Turned into a normal day. Yeah, that was very strange. We ended up going for a drive last night, overturned trees and stuff. It was a, it was an interesting time here in the Midwest. Hope that you're all doing well out there. We do know some of you took some big damage yesterday, uh, but hope you're doing well. Uh, wanted to start with uh, some more repercussions of the coronavirus and all that's going on in our culture Uh, Today, uh, the Big Ten has postponed officially their college football season. They're saying they may try to play again in the spring, but they are the biggest of the Power Five conferences. They're the first ones to pull the plug. And uh, this has been just a uh, uh, a hotly contested debate the president weighed in and stuff. Uh, and I don't know how much of it you have followed, but for me, man, when I see that now the college football seasons are pulling the trigger and everything else that's going on, it is just yet another reminder that, uh, as a country, we just don't have this thing under control right now. Whether you, whatever you want to believe about it, uh, it's, it's unequivocal that we don't have this under control yet. And we're going to continue to suffer the repercussions of that.
1: Do you think everyone agrees that it's unequivocal?
0: I agree that it's unequivocal (laughs) by the very fact that we're having to cancel things. But no, there's certainly people who think, oh, it's under control enough that we should go back to life as normal. But uh, So maybe unequivocal is the wrong word, but there's enough people that still believe it's a big deal that we're needing to change the way we do school still and church still and sports still and all this stuff. And uh, man, if you had gone back to when we first pulled the plug and you and I went home in March. I would have been like, yeah, maybe we'll be home for a month, maybe two. This has certainly not been what I expected, nor how could we know? No one's been through this. But it is weird now to see. I just assumed come fall, things would be great. And uh, it feels like things are even going backwards a little bit.
1: How how long ago were you assuming that things would be great by the fall?
0: You know, I think summer lulled me down a little bit to, to some, you know, you remember in the middle of June, all the numbers were getting better. Um, at least the numbers that I look at, and there seemed to be a lot of positivity. No pun intended. Not not positivity of the virus, but positivity of attitude. We seem to be trending in the right direction. And then, uh, and, and at least how I was reading things. And I think about that point in mid June. I remember thinking, I think I told my wife, "Yeah, school's going to be normal. They'll go back. Like they'll mm. need to take some precautions, but it won't be very different. And hopefully, they'll be able to." stay and it won't, there won't be the quote unquote, second wave. I think at that point in the middle of June, I was just like, yeah, we're on the right track and come fall, you know, maybe churches will be back open, but certainly schools, football, whatever else. And uh, so, yeah, I find discouragement in the way things are going, but uh, did you never feel like we were heading in the right direction here?
1: I was cautiously optimistic, but I I never really felt like I had a, like a strong sense of confidence. Like, oh yeah, we're definitely... We're definitely trending in the right way, um, but I, maybe I don't know. Maybe that's just my latent pessimism. It's hard to say. I think it is interesting. I kind of want to ask you, since you're sort of the sports guy, uh, yep. self proclaimed. Um, yep. What what is lost? Like, what are the effects, culturally speaking, of cancellations like this? Like, COVID aside, politics yep. aside, conspiracy theories aside. Like, what do you think? as a society, as a culture is lost or sacrificed or forfeited uh, when, when cancellations like this happen, not just, and not just the, Oh, I'm going to miss it. Like that's the obvious one. Like what are the more deeply embedded effects that you think this is going to have?
0: Yeah. There's a lot of answers to that one. You just got to think about the players and that's a small segment of this, but for the players uh, you know, you get four years to play college football and one of them is gone and, and you feel badly for them for the schools College football at these big schools in some of these, like the Ohio States and the Texas and stuff, uh, college football, the amount of money they make from college football literally funds all the other sports. And Mm -hmm. so uh, you take away a season of college football. uh, That's a huge, uh, huge deal. Uh, thirdly, think about the towns you grew up in Michigan. Think about Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? (laughs) How much money did Ann Arbor, Michigan make on those six Saturdays a year when there's 110,000 people uh, descending upon the campus, uh, in the South, right? Where college football is a little bit more religion than it is up here. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're losing a lot of your DNA and just your normalcy. You know, I think whatever we lost and this happened, in so many different ways with this virus, just what we know and kind of what makes us, it sounds like a really petty way to put it, but kind of what makes us happy and kind of the rhythm of our fall, right? Saturday, you get up, college football's on. And so I think there's, for the average person, I think it's just that normalcy, that distraction, that, that thing that we enjoy. It's another entertainment thing that's gone. So obviously the biggest loss is for the players, for the schools, but I think for the rest of us, uh, it won't change a ton for our day-to-day lives. But uh, it's certainly another thing that we're used to uh, that's now been taken away from us. And so, you know, it's it's just it's sad. It's sad, but it, it's a reminder that the virus uh, doesn't care about college football and doesn't care about the start of school and other things. And uh, we need to do what we can to get this thing under control.
1: See, again, um, what if we find out, though, that the virus was actually very sensitive and did care and was really sad to be causing all these cancellations? What if we come to find out that the virus is like a really... <laughs> Sensitive Enneagram 4. And we all this time shouldn't have said that it didn't care. Maybe it really does care and it just can't help itself. Well, this virus is doing a very bad job showing that it cares. Hey, hey, (laughs) hurt
0: hurt people, hurt people, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) One more one I wanted to point out this article our producer passes on to us just to again get a mindset of what's going on. Navy Pier right here in Chicago uh, is talking about. Uh it says Navy Pier could be shut down, says private operator. Here's the stat I want you to hear. Last year, Navy Pier made sixty million dollars in revenue. It expects this year to lose twenty million dollars. I'm not a math major, but that is an eighty million dollar swing. And so when people talk about what is the uh economic effects of the coronavirus, you think about the number of jobs that is and everything, tax revenue for Chicago. That's a huge number, don't you think? I do think it'd be weird if I didn't. It'd be weird
1: if I was like, nah, nah eighty that's million. Not, that's not that big a deal. It's probably <laughs> uh, not the highest on the list when you talk about like global economic effects, right. but it is something when you right. think about Chicago and you think about things that are sort of icons of the city. It is strange to me that the the emotionality of some of those things hits us differently when we know the numbers and we've been reading the statistics when you're like, oh, Navy Pier. It just like hits at a different
0: kind of like emotional
1: cognitive level, which is is sad for sure. Uh, Absolutely.
0: So that's where we're at with COVID today. Uh, Still feeling the effects of it, obviously, in many different ways. Well, coming up next, there was uh, a big article at the New York Times that just says this, Christianity will have power, Donald Trump made a promise to white evangelical Christians whose support can seem mystifying to the outside observer. We're going to discuss this big article in the New York Times coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Off of our talk from last segment about college football, I just found this quote, and then we'll jump into our other topic. Uh, here let me read this quote it is this i am it's from a football coach i'm having quite a time down here our asinine doctor has called off all practice for this week for no reason whatsoever that was Ro- uh, newt rockney before the 1980 uh, 18 season with the spanish flu so some things never change <laughs> oh interesting some things never change well this article at the new york times uh, came out on the ninth, and it was a big article that tried to go at Christianity, the evangelical vote, and Donald and President Trump, and tried to explain some things. So this is written by Elizabeth Díaz, and it's titled "This Christianity Will Have Power." Let me read the first couple paragraphs, and I just think there's a lot to unpack here. So, okay, uh, she writes this: uh, They walk to the sanctuary in the frozen silence before dawn, footsteps crunching over the snow. Soon. Hundreds joined in line. It was January of 2016, and the unlikely Republican frontrunner, Donald J. Trump, had come to town. Uh, he was the boastful, thrice-married, foul star of The Apprentice. They were one of the most conservative Christian communities in the nation, with 19 churches in a town of 7,500 people. Many were skeptical and came to witness the spectacle for themselves of a handful of stood in silent protest, but when the doors opened and the pews filled, Mr. Trump's fans welcomed him by chanting his name. A man waved a, quote, silent majority stands with Trump sign. A woman pointed a lone pink fingernail up to the sky. In his dark suit and red tie, Mr. Trump stood in front of the pipe organ and waved his arms to their shouts of Trump, Trump, Trump. In his 67-minute speech Mr. Trump gave that day, uh, it would become infamous, instantly covered on cable news, because this is the one where he said, if I, c- I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, uh, it sh- although it overshadowed another message that morning. He said this, I will tell you, Christianity is under tremendous siege, whether we want to talk about it or we don't want to talk about it. Uh, Christians make up the overwhelming majority of the country, he said, and then he slowed slightly to stress each next word and yet we don't exert the power that we should have. If he were elected president, he promised that would change. He raised a finger. Christianity will have power, he said. If I'm there, you're going to have plenty of power, and you don't need anybody else. You're going to have somebody representing you very, very well. Remember that. Uh, And so then she goes on to some more, but I want to pause there with that background. Hey, do you remember this time in the election? But what, what about that, about Christianity at that point being tremendously under siege and needing to exert its power?
1: Uh, where do I start? Um, mm-hmm. I'm reminded of Acts 1, verse 8, Brian, where <laughs> Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'm assuming that's not what President Trump was referencing necessarily, like a... Mm-hmm. Second coming or a spiritual revival of some kind, it does kind of show uh, Western evangelicals long tied to the desire for power. And that's not fair. I think everybody to some degree desires mm-hmm. power um, or influence or however you define that, that word. It is uh, obviously a bit concerning to link. And I, I guess maybe what he was trying to say was maybe you feel underrepresented and with me here, you'll be represented. The The word power is really the thing that I think shifts the tone of the sentiment. If I'm here, you're going to have plenty of f- power. You don't need anybody else. It's sort of the, 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 assumption then is that like, if I'm not here, Christianity won't have power. And we've talked a number of times, sometimes for whole segments and oftentimes with multiple se- segments for, you know, with various guests that, the idea that political office is the kind of power that Christians should be most preoccupied with is super dangerous. And I'm not saying that there aren't like good people in office that I bring with them Christian values and morality Mm -hmm. and ethics that I think can enact good things in the world. However, I think when we make political power, the greatest hope and aim for Christianity That that's when I think Jesus has some pretty specifically harsh words for for that kind of thinking, to be honest.
0: Yeah. And so this article really long, if you haven't already read it, this was flying around social media uh, on on New York Times. I know a lot of you just hear New York Times and you're like, oh, I already know what that's going to be about. But uh, about this. Here, let me ask you this too. Do you believe, ah, not believe, but what are your thoughts about it when you hear a line like, because I hear it a lot of times from people on social media and other places that Christianity is under tremendous siege right now. Do you believe in our country, Christianity is under tremendous siege?
1: I think globally, it certainly is. I think the siege that Christianity is under here is probably much different than what a lot of Christ followers are experiencing around the globe. That doesn't mean that we're not experiencing some of it, uh, I don't think it is apples to apples, though, to say, yeah, in some countries, Christians are being beheaded. And here, some Christians are, you know, maybe at worst losing their jobs or being kicked out of programs. But even even those seem to be extreme examples. Uh, I I think I think if we take Paul's word seriously, that there is a battle at all times, I think you could say at any point in history, at some level, yes, Christianity is under attack. Like We have an enemy wants nothing more than to divide and conquer us. So I think it is safe to say that I do sometimes feel like we take that word and I'll include myself in the we and maybe mm-hmm. conflate any level of inconvenience or outcome that isn't what I desired as persecution or like this article references siege. Um, I don't, I don't know that I agree with necessarily linking that. It's kind of like the the person that, you know, was really, really rude to their spouse, and then that spouse made them sleep on the couch, and they're like, well, that's just my cross to bear. And you're like, no, those are just called consequences. Like, that's not that's not what that phrase means. I do think sometimes we, uh, we jump to siege and persecution maybe too often, but I think there's probably some of that that's happening. Again, I don't want to, like, compare our suffering to others, but it is a helpful perspective, I think. It's why we often do international stories on this show to kind of help keep in perspective, I guess, for us what other Christ followers are facing globally. I don't know. So I I guess the sort of answer like, yeah, probably in some ways, but maybe not as much or as often as sometimes we make it out to sound.
0: Yeah. And you do a good job talking about this. So as we close this out, just the whole idea of power, and you touched on it already, but the Christianity will have power. Maybe speak to uh, Christians out there who are like, yeah, I think that we should be, we need more power so that we we can enact in this nation what we think is right and what we want. Uh, what about the, uh, what are the dangers of Christians going, hey, hey, I want us to have power.
1: Gosh, so many thoughts. Like I think of, uh, I think it's Matthew, maybe Matthew 17 or 18. It's right after Jesus has told the disciples actually that he's going to be killed. And then like in a completely tone deaf way, the disciples, they're like, next question is who will be greatest in your kingdom? Right. Well, who among us? You're like, hey, I just told you that I'm going to die, and they like miss the point. And then that's when he makes the reference to children, right? He calls a child to be almost this object lesson, and that's often sort of taught as we should have childlike wonder the way that kids do. And I don't, I think that's true, but I think it's incomplete. Children in the first century were like lowest on the rung, like they were barely above property, and and he makes a pretty provocative statement, like unless you become like these kids, in other words, unless you turn a one eighty from your pursuit of power and prestige and become like these kids that the culture, you know, sees as next to nobody, you're going to miss it. You'll never enter the kingdom. So it's, Jesus seems to have like a very backwards way of thinking about power and influence and prestige and platform.
0: than we do that. I, I think at the very least should, should give us pause. Yeah, that's well put. He, this article here is really well worth your time. One of the longer ones we've ever posted, but it's from the New York times. Uh, if Christianity will have power, kind of a look at, a deep dive into President Trump and his ties and his uh, backing by even in the evangelical world. So I'd give it a read, especially as we move into uh, this uh, election season. Some of you are going to really agree with it, some of you are going to be insulted by it. We would love to hear your feedback. You're going to be able to do that at our Facebook page. The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, out of Christian Today, one of our favorite authors, Scott McKnight. We're going to read a blog post of his entitled "Help, My Pastor Is a Narcissist." That's coming up next year on the Common Good. AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Scott McKnight, somebody. We've had Scott McKnight on the show. I said, somebody we want to have on the show. We've had him on the show. Can we call him a friend of the show? I mean, go right ahead, Brian. It hasn't stopped you before in the past. I think they have to be on one time, and I'm willing to go friend of the show. Mm. So, uh, friend of the show, Scott McKnight. He wrote at his blog, Jesus Creed, on Christianity Today, Help, My Pastor is a Narcissist, Eight Strategies for Dealing with Narcissistic Pastors. Tell us about what Scott McKnight had to write.
1: Yeah, if you've not heard the name Scott McKnight yet, first off, what are you doing? Secondly, uh, read anything he writes. He writes, Christina today, pretty regularly. He's cranking out books at an insane pace. Just, a, just someone who I think is a prolific, but like scholarly weighted voice and perspective, which is really, really needed. He talks about eight strategies for dealing with narcissistic pastors. It is kind of sad, actually, because this like cover image is like of a full gathering, like a big gathering. Conference. I'm like, oh, man, when are we going to be able to do that again? But I'll just, <laughs> uh, I'll just start it off how he starts it off. He says, it is a sad irony that churches at times attract unempathetic, selfish narcissists as leaders, where the narcissists simply find their way to the top, which must be somewhat true, or the top of the leader tower attracts the narcissist, which is which also must be somewhat true. We, uh, we all know that it is, oh boy, all we know is that too <laughs> many churches have too many narcissists in leadership and they are mostly male, so I won't be as nuanced in alternating between he and she. If we are to have any hope of developing a goodness, and I'm parenthetically, tove, culture in our churches, these narcissists, unempathetic leaders, must be narcissistic, unempathetic leaders, must be resisted. Should I really be reading today? I don't feel like. You're doing well. Well, You're going to make a comeback here. Oh, boy. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. Uh, Laura (laughs) Beringer and I discuss discuss all of this more in our soon-to-appear book, A Church Called Tove, and our focus is on the seven characteristics of churches that form into Tove, or goodness, cultures. But let's be careful about this term, narcissist. Not all leaders are narcissists, and not even all strong leaders are narcissists. Some people fling narcissists At anyone they don't like who is a leader, quote, above the person. So let's get an official description on the table, and I will use the Mayo Clinic summary. So let me give the summary, and then we'll dive into uh, the kind of meat and potatoes of the article. Narcissistic personality disorder, or NPD for short, is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration troubled relationships and a lack of empathy for others. But behind this mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to the slightest criticism. Mm. Now, so then he goes on and say, we discussed this more in the book, but I summarize in points a narcissist has one, an inflated sense of importance two, a need for admiration, three signs of troubled relationships, four lack of empathy for others and five vulnerable to the slightest criticisms. So you wouldn't happen to know any, leaders that fit those categories. Would you, Brian? <laughs> I plead the fifth on this one. <laughs> probably more than fair. Yes. Okay. So he goes on to talk a little bit about if you suspect that maybe your pastor or leader is a narcissist. He gives a, a list. Brian from loves lists. Oh, I do very much for uh, ways to combat that, or at
0: least go after it. So why don't you take number one? Yeah. He says, here's what you do first. Pray, read your Bible about Jesus's way of the cross. Seek counsel with wise leaders who are marked by Tove or goodness and spirit-led grace. Pray some more. Pray for a quiet revolution of Tove that drowns the narcissism. That's mm-hmm. a great one. And oftentimes in churches, right, what's the first answer? Pray. But it's the first answer because it's an important answer. And yeah. he says... Use, uh, take it to God and spend time in prayer over this. Yeah. Secondly, he says, resist making the pastor a hero. Resist bragging about the pastor.
1: Resist those who brag about the pastor. When prisoners are all bragging about the pastor, you most likely have a pastor who wants to be bragged about. Not always. The narcissistic pastor wants glory and makes glory a good thing, and it has to be discerned for what it is
0: and resisted. Mm, that's good. Number three. Uh, Third, oftentimes, the bigger the church, the bigger the ego it takes to manage and control and lead and guide the church. Mm. I use quotation marks here because the more egocentric the pastor, the more likely the term is, quote, control. Mm. Not all megachurch pastors are narcissists, but narcissists are attracted to megachurches. In fact, narcissists are attracted to power. So solo pastors with lots of power and authority and control, no matter the size of the church, Mm. are attractive to the narcissist that's really good. The fact is, uh, the word there is control.
1: Number four, from groundswells of magnifying the work of others in order to form a culture that is other oriented instead of pastor oriented.
0: Mm. That's pretty good. Number five, emphasize those in need, their stories, and how the church can serve them. Remember, narcissists have no genuine empathy, and what empathy they show is often done to magnify themselves and their supposed empathy. Hmm. Resist the pastor taking credit for other oriented services done by church folks. Tell stories of others serving others, help form cultures that are other oriented. And then six, he says form pockets of
1: culture that are committed to reconciled relationships. Narcissists have lots of broken relationships. So a Tove culture must work on reconciled relationships as a new kind of
0: culture. I like that one. Hmm. Yeah, Number seven, find, quote, board members, whatever it's called, elders, deacons, leadership council, who have the courage to work for a Tove culture and who discern and resist pockets of narcissistic culture. Know that they will be browbeaten at times, humiliated and publicly shamed, but it's your church, not his. I know elders who have talked with us about resisting narcissistic pastors, and it's a never ending battle that the elders never seem to win. Keep resisting and working for Tove in all directions. Do this with Christian grace. Don't fight a narcissist with rage because the rage is his secret room. Good one. Louise. All right.
1: Number eight, work for accountability at all levels. Narcissistic pastors of churches, large and small, seemingly gravitate toward non-denominational churches or non-accountable church structures Mm -hmm. where they answer to no one. They prefer it that way, which, I mean, honestly
0: makes sense. It really does. It really does. And he says here, a final word from Robert N. Roth, an expert on dysfunctional churches and pastors. He says this, it is my opinion based on extensive research and informal observation that authoritarian leaders are ecclesiastical loners. That is, they do not function well or willingly in the context of systematic checks and balances. They are fiercely independent and refuse to be part of a structure of accountability. To put it crudely, they operate a one man or one woman spiritual show. And God help the person who gets in the way or makes waves. Yes, sometimes they will point to a board of elders or its equivalent, but more likely than not, this turns out to be a faithful inner circle of clones that implicitly accepts all that the leader sets forth. Like this article, it it goes at it here and certain things probably come to mind. I think what stands out to me is uh, it really takes a lot of courage for people within a church to kind of call this out and do this work. So that article there is Scott McKnight. Help, my pastor is a narcissist. You can find that on our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next to the Gospel Coalition, uh, an important lesson for parents to teach their kids. We're going to discuss that next here on The Common Good AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good AM 1160, Hope for Your Life with Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian. Fr- with Ian Simpkins just doesn't sound right. Just doesn't sound right. Yeah, I felt forced. Didn't it? You were just waiting for the alongside. Mm-hmm. What's better than alongs? What's different than alongside, but better than with? Would it be just along with Ian Simpkins? I don't know. Well, I, I think that's what I say. Oh, okay, so that's yours. I can't take that one.
1: Okay, I, you can't, I, I don't. Uh, I haven't cornered the market there. Let's see. Let's see what thesaurus.com says. com says.
0: <laughs> uh, alongside of
1: a pace, pace with that's fun. Mm. Close at hand. Close at hand with Ian Simpkins. That's not bad. <laughs> Yikes. Equal with, in company with, in company with Ian Timkins.
0: Okay. Okay. I
1: do think you've been saying alongside the the definition does seem to imply like a close physical proximity.
0: Yeah. I mean, really, to be honest, not only have I been saying alongside today, but for the last 18 months. (laughs) And I feel like this is what I said
1: 18 months ago. I think this implies that we're physically next to each other. Yep.
0: Well, the first Near time I did it were physically, but it, it has been a while. So true. anyway, compelling radio as to what words we should use to describe mm-hmm. our proximity to one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Melissa Kruger wrote an article entitled this, the most important lesson parents teach. Uh, the most important lesson parents teach. Before reading it I'm curious, you've got young kids. I remember, especially when my kids were as young as yours, I feel like I read everything and tried to take all the advice, but it actually got a little frustrating because you would get so much advice. And eventually I was just like, I'm just going to parent the best I know how are you one who reads as much as you can? Or are you like, no, nah, we're just going to figure this out.
1: Yeah. I'm probably somewhere in between, you know, it's not the same at all, but I'm the oldest of seven kids. So I feel like I've been around little Good babies morning. and kids for a lot of my life. And as I got older, you know, when you're the oldest of seven, there's certainly some expectation. Like, hey, I need you to take care of this diaper, figure out this bottle, or whatever. So I, I, don't feel like I was as spooked. I probably did a whole lot more at the beginning, and my wife did way more reading and research than I did just to give her props. She was definitely way more on the ball than I was. But like stuff like uh, sleep schedules and wanting to get, you know, they were both preemies, so that's pretty nerve wracking when it comes to a little like learning how to hold a bottle and that kind of stuff. But I, I tend to be a whole lot more like. Ew. We're gonna figure it out and um, yep. I'll listen to a parenting podcast here and there but I, I try to get too caught up in it because it feels like a lot of that stuff changes
0: every three years anyway you know I's so true I remember when my wife would retrieve it was like your wife reading all the books that she could find and I'd be like just tell me what I need to know right <laughs> just <laughs> just give me the clip, let though. me know well we're gonna share an article with some advice here at the Gospel Coalition Melissa Krueger she's uh, starts off this way motherhood is joyful but daunting. We never feel like an expert because the subject keeps changing. When you've parented toddler, it's time for elementary school. Once you've gotten uh, tweens figured out, we're parenting teens. And then all of a sudden, we're waving goodbye as they head off to college. As we go through each stage, we're bombarded with a list of advice and things uh, we need to, quote, make sure to do so our children succeed, right? Make sure they play classical music. They pick up educational choice. They eat healthy foods and so on. In an effort to do all the things we're supposed to do, we run our children from playgroups to practices, all the while somewhat confused and lost in the haze, wondering, am I doing everything I'm supposed to do? We're searching for purpose and something called success, but many days we lose sight of our main goal as Christian parents. We want uh, our children to know Jesus. It's the only message that matters, but sometimes in all our living, we forget to tell our children how to truly live. Let me pause there. What do you think of that premise that we get so caught up in everything we feel like we should be doing for our kids that we kind of miss the main point uh, that we as Christ-following parents should have?
1: Uh, Gosh, I I always am trepidatious about weighing in on parenting in general because I feel like I'm so brand new to all of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do like, I appreciate articles like this because they don't feel heavy-handed, I guess. Like, I think some of what was difficult early on was not only like the panic of not knowing what you're doing, but then also feeling like every every piece of advice was like this code red imperative. Like, if you're not mm-hmm. doing this, everyone in your house yeah. is doomed. You're like, I don't, okay, I, that might be true. I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm brand new, so who knows? I, I think that part of what I've appreciated about a big family and seeing my parents model parenting, not perfectly, obviously, but, really like including us in a lot of the reasoning behind why they were doing things. I still, I still hold those things really dear. Like, wow, they really included us in some of the process. Now there was certainly plenty of like, because I said so like, that's, that's it, right. it's just happening. And uh, I don't know. I, I've, I've been grateful for the somewhat of a, of a head start. I almost felt like I got by being the oldest of a big family and getting a chance to kind of watch them, you know, do it up close.
0: Yeah, absolutely. She okay. says, goes on to say, she wrote, wherever you go, I want you to know, to make sure I told my children this as clearly as possible. And this is the point of the article. She said, whatever you do in this world, the most important thing I want for you is to know, love, and follow Jesus. Uh, whatever job they do, whatever sports they play, whatever success or failures they have, all that ultimately matters is knowing Jesus. It's a message our children need to hear, our teens need to hear, and parents uh, themselves Need to hear. She goes on to say, Our children need to hear lots of different things, uh, but this is what they need uh, to hear. She says, I hope my children hear every day from my lips the good news of Jesus that He made them, He loves them, and He's good, kind, and true. And she talks about doing that for teens and that we as parents need this reminder. Uh, I love what she has to say here. And it is so difficult to actually live this perspective out in the day in and day out grind of of parenting like you and I are in very different spots but even like right. thinking of your kids in your age like how do you even live with this sort of intentionality when you're just trying to get them through the day of like <laughs> you know get a nap and don't break things and don't right. hurt your brother <laughs> yeah. this and that I almost sometimes when I read this amount of intentionality it quite frankly starts to uh, uh it starts to intimidate me
1: oh uh, really I I don't I mean I, I certainly have my my vices when it comes to parenting, or the stuff that like stomps on my nerve, or like really sends my blood pressure through the roof faster than other things. And oh, and my oldest is is only just now I feel like really coming online to the reality that he can push dad's buttons. Like, ooh, if I do uh. it. Like, I can see it in his face. But like, I I'm gonna share on Sunday. Like, one of the things that I try really hard to do is rather than just simply disciplining against certain actions try to really speak identity into him. That's a distinction I'm trying to make. And one of the examples that I give, and I do it really imperfectly, but rather than like, cause you know, Owen's trying to figure out his physical space and we'll watch him like push his little brother and I'm an oldest. So I'm like particularly sensitive to the, like the older brother responsibility. So rather than just simply saying, stop, don't do that. I want to say things like, no, that's not who you are. And I know that he doesn't totally get that yet. But I, I want to make sure that that distinction's really clear. Like I'm not just, I don't want you to do that anymore, but it's more than that. Like, that's not true. I know that you have a heart that loves your brother and that's just not how we treat people. That's you a Simpkins. That's not how we live. And I, I'm trying to build that in now so that when he actually really is old enough to understand those things, it's like, it's more second nature. And again, super imperfectly. Cause I sure, have sure. really rough days like everybody. And then, you know, your, your temper, your patience has run thin and, but yeah, I think articles like this can certainly be challenging and intimidating because you step back and like, wow, I'm not doing most of this, which is super humbling.
0: Yeah. yeah, although I, I think the framework you give there about speaking into identity, I think is a good one. Even if you don't do it perfectly. She ends, while some days with our children can feel like they may never end, the years fly by. Amid the coming and going activities in education, may we remember to communicate the one thing that matters. Jesus is everything. That's mm-hmm. Melissa Kruger, uh, a well-written article. Uh, over at the Gospel Coalition. We'll have that up at our Facebook page if you would like to read that. Uh, well, the first hour is in the book. Coming up next, we are going to talk about schools reopening and how does COVID-19 uh, how does COVID affect kids? We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope you're learning. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about kids going back to school, what fuels divisions in the church, and then we're going to end with some good news. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back, friends, to The Common Good. I'm Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simkins. Wow. And... Uh, That wasn't bad. That one wasn't bad. But you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Online, 1160hope.com, podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. We are grateful for those of you who join us uh, every day on the radio and every day on our podcast. We are thankful for you. So, yeah, and every now and then when we're doing the show, one of the fun things is is, uh, when we turn on Twitter and go, oh, we didn't see that going on, and uh, that is the case today as Joe Biden just made his vice president's pick within the last couple hours here. Uh, Kamala Harris, is he has picked her to be his vice president uh, nominee to run with him. And so not a huge surprise, but I don't know if do you have any reaction. Uh, I know we are the 1160 side and not the 560 side of the station, but wondering if you have any reaction uh, to the pick of Kamala Harris.
1: Well, I uh, I did see that Drew Dick actually predicted this just a couple of days ago. And then uh, he tweeted, he tweeted that uh, you can sign up for his prophecy conference today. So <laughs> I, say, I say, I say good for him. Uh, nope. Yeah, this is, this is probably the pick I was most expecting, to be honest.
0: I think it was for me, too. One of the interesting things is, and this is the old saying, right? Politics makes strange bedfellows. It's uh, is that uh, when they were debating in the in the Democratic uh, primary when all those debates she went at him really hard and you've got to believe that some of those clips are going to come back and they'll they'll have their ways around it yeah. but it is always strange to me a little bit maybe it shouldn't be when two people who have really gone at it uh, in some very uh, not personal but just uh, passionate ways are then uh, put together and teaming up so I, it'll be interesting I think to see how they navigate those waters at least I totally agree that's what makes politics fun. I was actually reading an article the other day of the number of times, and that's not this case, but the number of times through the years where, where somebody chose their most bitter rival and what the reason, like I didn't even know Reagan's bitter rival was George HW Bush. And then he chose him and some of the others. And uh so it's always very interesting. We'll see how it plays out. Now the field is set and we can march even quicker towards the November election. Isn't that going to be fun? So, I do want to talk about something that is uh, consuming uh, a lot of people, especially in my stage of life, our thought, and that is the reopening of schools. So let me touch on a couple of different things, because I know a lot of our listeners out there uh, are trying to process it all right now. We're kind of coming out of summer, and now it feels uh, really real. And let me just bring up two things okay. uh, and see if you saw these and get your reaction. The first it out, is out of CNN. Uh, the article says this. uh that there has been a 90% increase in COVID-19 cases in U.S. children in the last four weeks, report says. A 90% increase. Now, we've always been told that the kids are the least likely to have any issues. Uh, you're a dad with little ones. I'm a dad with kids uh, in junior high, high school, late elementary school. Curious, when you read something like this, uh kind of makes the hair stand up on your back of your neck doesn't it
1: yeah it makes me think as i often am thinking these days wow my wife is right she was right to be cautious and Mm -hmm. to uh to put some stricter parameters in place than maybe what i would have otherwise been inclined toward um i do find too that regardless of where people land on the issue in general when you tell them that you have young kids there's sort of like universal like oh okay i get it i get it like that seems to be the thing that regardless, whether you're, you know, a fan of masks. I don't think anyone's a fan of masks, but whether you're diligent about mask wearing or you don't think it helps at all, or you shouldn't have to, or anything in between, typically I'm like, well, I got a, I got a two and one year old at home. People are like, oh, okay, I that is sort of the one thing that I feel like is is uh ha- at least it's been strangely universal in my experience. But like, I didn't realize that we've had ninety ninety deaths in kids in the U.S. already. I didn't realize right. that that number was already that high. Um, it is a little frightening. And it and I don't know that we were always told necessarily that it didn't affect kids. It feels more like uh, something that spread through the grapevine than like official uh, like court ordered or sanctioned responses to what, you know, the, how this virus actually works. But I, we, I guess we definitely did hear it from some authorities early on. And it is kind of strange to see us learn as we go when it comes to like how this thing
0: actually works. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh I know our church is uh being a much smaller church than yours. We've kind of dabbled in some more of gathering in very specific, very safe ways. Uh and as we have, we still do everything online, but as we've done some stuff where we invite people into smaller groups or we even did a very uh small number of people at our service this past Sunday. Uh what has been constant is there's never anybody there with kids. Mm-hmm. Never. Uh, and, uh, no matter what we offer, in fact, this week, uh, when we had people in the church for the service, not one kid there. And Mm -hmm. I always applaud those people. I'm absolutely totally get it. As opposed to like, come on, bring your kid, you know, like I think, uh, and especially with young kids, and that is a good jumping off point then to the, to the conversation about school, right? Uh, this one, you, did you see out of Georgia, um, there were those pictures on their first day of school. They leaked those photos of like packed hallways with no kids in masks. Did you see those pictures? I did see those pictures. Yeah. This out of NBC News today. Coronavirus cases lead over 800 to quarantine in Georgia school district where masks were not required. Uh, So already that school is under quarantine. And you're seeing that in some places um, where school districts that opened and especially school districts, uh, especially in the south, because they opened earlier that opened without any mask requirements and stuff are already having issues with teachers and students. And it's just, you know, I feel we're going to send our kids back for the hybrid where they are. Some of it's at home, some of it's in school. They have to wear masks. It's all very well thought out. Like, I'm really impressed by the job our school has done. uh, And I'm worried. Like, it's okay to be both, right? Uh, Sending kids back. And I don't know, man, it's just such a weird thing that now school is in the conversation and you see these stats about kids, kind of something I said earlier, right? Like, I think I lulled myself into some false sense of security, like, oh, my kids can't get sick or it's going to go away. And now, all of this, it's just, it's, it's no other way to put it except it's just really uh, anxiety causing. It's, it's scary when it, when you start thinking about your kids and, and a place like school.
1: There's a, another article that maybe, maybe we'll commit another segment to later out of mm-hmm. Slate. And the uh, headline simply reads, they'll never quote, get over it. And yep. the subheading says, think school kids won't be hurt by COVID 19. Experiences from the, the 1918 9, 19 flu says otherwise. That's by Rebecca Onion over at Slate. And that's a, that's a pretty, Again, I know that a lot has changed in hundred years, but there there are some interesting takeaways that she outlines there that uh, I think are worthwhile. Again, having a two and one year old, I there's a lot of stressors there, but I'm I am really grateful. I don't envy you or mm-hmm. people that have to make school choices for their kids right now because that that just, it feels like a nightmare no matter how you slice it.
0: And it's the old thing I said it to you the other day. Like uh, my common line to my kids or even people at our church is like we're trying to pick the best bad option. Like none of these are good. Like right. keeping your kids home and only doing remote learning has negative effects. Sending your kids to school could have negative effects. Right. You know, all of it is negative. And so that's the frustrating thing. One of the many frustrating things here, but we'll put these articles up on our Facebook page. Some of you parents out there who are wrestling with this decision, even still as school approaches, we would love to hear from you. What are you doing? What are your thought process? How are you? making your way through this. You can do that up at our Facebook page. Well, coming up next, something we've talked a lot about uh, at a website called Facts and Trends, just simply this, what's fueling the divisions in your church? An interesting article we're going to discuss next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, you found this fascinating article at factsandtrends.net. Anytime it's not Christian Headlines or CNN or Christianity Today, I know that you're the one who found the article. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that's very kind. <laughs> It's really, really true. <laughs> it's mostly just because I have really smart friends on Facebook and I'm just stealing all the stuff they post. I'm not. It's great. This is not like a normal place that I would go to see stuff. But I see someone else with a doctorate. I'm like, oh, OK, I'm going to take a
0: look at that. Someday we should post a screenshot of what we call our link nump, where we put all of our articles. Mine, mine look all the same, and yours are just all over the place of different websites. Which isn't not, It's
1: not always a good thing, though, because sometimes there's like a, there's a very weird, like, it was scary mommy. You know, I'll uh, put a yes.
0: there.
1: <laughs> you started adding some Git pockets in yours, whatever that is.
0: That's right. And you go to open it, you're like, I'm not sure I should push this. <laughs> yeah, this seems like spam. Yes, but at Facts and Trends, you found this article by Aaron Aaron Earls entitled "What's Fueling the Divisions in Your Church?" I think, especially in this time of COVID, we've end of political upheaval, social upheaval. uh, I think a lot of us, as pastors, especially, have not only felt divisions within the bigger church, but maybe within our own churches, but tried to get at. What's causing these divisions? And so this article, I think, is really timely called What's Fueling the Divisions in Your Church? Why don't you jump into it?
1: Yeah. Also, as an aside, part of me giggled when I read the title because uh, a good buddy of mine who's actually been on the show, he's a pastor in Bartlett. His name is Michael Fueling. So when I read What's Fueling the Divisions in Your Church, <laughs> I just uh, I giggled a little bit because I'm a nerd. Anyway, okay. So right here's on. what he says. Um When asked their most significant struggle in this moment, pastors pointed to the disunity in their congregation. Think about that for a moment. Pastors are dealing with a -a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that has radically altered how most congregations are gathering. The coronavirus has impacted every facet of pastoral ministry. In the midst of all that upheaval, pastors are most worried about their churches being divided. So what's causing the division? Pastors say that churchgoers have vastly different perspectives on handling the pandemic. Some are scared to death, while others are convicted it's a hoax, said one pastor. Trying to minister to both ends of the spectrum is exhausting. Clearly, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed and compounded issues that were already present within our culture, including the church. But Christians have disagreed on issues since the founding of our faith. Read Acts and Paul's letters to those first congregations to get a feel for those divisions. In one sense... This is nothing new. Jesus knew unity among Christians would be important so much that he devoted time and prayer to the topic the night before his crucifixion. In what has become known as the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus asks his father to bring unity to all those who will come to believe in his message. The unity of Christians with each other is to be a witness to Jesus' unity with the father. But pastors say they are experiencing anything but unity right now. What's happening? Many factors, no doubt, play a role in this problem, but one statistic may underscore a significant contributor to our current division. This is written so well, by the way, because like yeah. it's like a tease. It's like, well, tell me, tell me, well, tell me tell what me. the thing is. Yes, yes. It says on, on any given day, evangelical Christians in the U.S. are twice as likely to open Facebook as their Bible, according to Lifeway Research. And so he's going to kind of go on to talk about the heading here is anti-social media. The irony of social media is that it was pitched as a way for us to stay connected with those we love, but in reality, social media has worked to keep us connected uh, to the app by stoking anger at those we love and those we've never met. Social media apps intentionally amplify the most extreme voices because they're the ones most likely to generate a response. Being loud gets Facebook likes. Unreasonableness gains Twitter retreats. As Chris Martin, social media strategist for Lifeway puts it, Social media is not necessarily biased leftward or rightward. It's biased downward. Oh, that is a money. I'm going to go tweet that right now. I think that is such a good reminder. And it's interesting because Lifeway does a lot of these types of surveys and research. And uh, what they're going to really say is social media in some sense is at the core of so much of our division, which I think is fascinating and disheartening.
0: Yeah, they the statistics here that they use percentage of evangelicals in the U.S. who say they use the following every day. Facebook, 66 percent, YouTube, 39 percent, the Bible, 32 percent. That's an issue. And I totally get it. It doesn't surprise me. Um, but it, the question is, what's forming us? And uh, we've talked a lot on this show about the formation of things mm-hmm. from things like social media and Facebook and also from cable news. Uh, man, this article, I'm going to give this to some people I know I'm going to keep this going because I feel this. I I feel this just not just within my own church, but doing the show, just seeing the church in general, that uh, the divisions, the tribalness, the the running to different um, corners. Right. And vilifying the other, even when they are a fellow believer in Christ, I think this is. Uh, I think I would agree with people when they say what's the biggest issue and talking about this issue of divisions and disunity. I think it is. And they really uh, bring some great stats to light here.
1: Yeah. And there's some stuff here that uh, maybe isn't obvious to everybody because I'm to say your Facebook feed is designed to give you content that will provoke a reaction in order to keep you on Facebook as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Facebook and every other social media platform is attempting to manipulate users through the bait most likely to generate a response. For many, social media has not made us more social. It's made us more antisocial, angrier, and more divided. Again, we've talked about on other shows, down to even like the hue of the apps or the ways that we refresh pages. That's all made to addict us. It's made to release the greatest amount of dopamine per use to keep us on it as long as possible, which when you think about what these platforms' main objectives are, that does make sense, I think we do sometimes kind of live in this fog, this, this myth of like autonomy. And like, have you ever had that realization, Brian, where you went to grab your phone for like, quote unquote, a second, and then you like blink and 10 minutes has passed and you're still staring at it. You're like, what am I, what am I doing on, I don't have any reason to be on my phone right now, but you just sort of autopilot. That's the point. That's everything's designed for that particular result, which I think is terrifying.
0: So if this is as big an issue as they're saying it is, uh, they give an answer at the end, which we'll touch on. But as you think about pastoring your church and your people through this kind of reality, this is our reality uh, of our culture. What are some answers? What do we do with this? If we feel like social media and other things are what's causing divisions, how do we how do we uh, pastor through this? Okay,
1: so a couple of things and they're going to sound real Sunday school. I I think we were talking about this even yesterday. Um, scripture before social media, like yeah. just as a, as a rule of thumb, maybe scripture before devices would be even better because sometimes it's not quite the same, but I, I can be good at avoiding Facebook, but I jump right to email. Mm-hmm. And that's again, not designed in quite the same way that a lot of social media platforms are, but it's still, it's not enriching. It's not forming me more and more as an apprentice of Jesus at all. And I think, you know, how we begin our days has significant impact on how the rest of our day goes. And that's not to say it's a promise that like, oh, my day is going to be great because I read a chapter, not at all, but like how we choose to begin our days, I think is really, really important. I think, again, we've mentioned uh, the book Common Rule, and there's a really great website in association with the book that can help you like establish what's called a rule of life, which is just building in rhythms. It's uh, he talks about things to embrace and things to resist. And they're all totally achievable. So I, I don't, I think for some people, the right thing is to delete it all together. I'm not knocking that at all. But I think for the vast majority of us, if we just set some parameters in place, what we're going to resist and what we're going to embrace as Christ followers, you know, and kind of our vertical and horizontal relationships, like putting those things, like building them in, like even the idea of a rule of life, the rule isn't a great translation. The the Benedictines, uh, I think was that, that's where I think it originated with St. Benedict. It's really much more like a picture of a trellis. It's like a structure to help the vine grow most effectively. That's it's right. Like building a structure for ourselves so that we're not, you know, choked out by all these things. And I think some of those are, are pretty, pretty helpful
0: starting points. Absolutely. A great article here. Facts and trends. What's fueling divisions in our church? And it gets back to what's our foundation? What are we feasting on? As they say, and as Ian shared with us, love for you to read it uh, up on our Facebook page. We're glad you're joining us today. Uh, You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Happy to have you joining us on a calm weather Tuesday. After yesterday, it's nice to see the sunshine and just have it nice and calm. Hopefully those of you who are needing to clean up, uh, you're able to do so and glad you're spending some time with us today. Well, At Christianity Today, Daniel Harrell wrote wrote an editorial uh, reflecting upon a story we did a couple times over the last couple weeks, the story of John Ortberg, uh, and the editorials entitled this, John Ortberg and the Pitfalls of Pastoral Discernment, and then uh, underneath it says, when we consent to our calling as ministers of the gospel, we assent to be public imitators of all it proclaims. Uh, So if you'll let me, I'll just read this editorial okay, and uh, then we'll dive into it because it kind of tries to help us try to make sense of a little bit of what happened in the sad situation uh, with the Ortberg. So let me jump into this. Again, this is on Christianity Today. John Ortberg's resignation statement as senior pastor of Menlo Church, given all that transpired provoked more sadness than surprise. I never knew Ortberg personally. Professionally, I appreciated his contributions as a writer and thinker and ministry leader. Mm. Many pastors aspire to the kind of reach Ortberg enjoyed, though few of us ever achieve it. This is perhaps its own blessing. The cause behind Ortberg's resonate, resignation was disconcertingly public. Ortberg allowed his son who admitted being attracted to children to serve as a volunteer with children. Social media furiously fluttered, drew hard lines, and lobbed rocks. Uh, Some cited uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the story has it all, family conflict, high-profile missteps, miscalculations, and such. As Menlo's motto on its homepage reads, nobody's perfect, anything's possible. Uh, The fierce reactions found fuel from the combustibility of call-out and cancel culture, it's been painful to read. As a pastor for 35 years, with my own laundry list of mistakes, I recalled Jesus's words: "Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw stone." Nevertheless, actions have consequences. Pastors are to be sure, pastors are sinners to be sure, but when we consent to our calling, we assent to a high standard. Public obedience atop pedestals and in fishbowl,s uh, on display, not for show, but as examples to imitate, like it or not. High public standards mean certain failure an opportunity in itself to exhibit the high calling of humble repentance and recommitment. We don't lower standards for the sake of persevering and performing uh, a fake righteousness. No, as sinners, we embrace grace as pardon and as incentive mm. uh, to recall Jesus's words against stone throwing. One must likewise recall his words to the sinner caught, but no longer condemned, go and sin no more. In doing so, we aspire to the whole measure of the fullness of, uh, of Christ, the path to such fullness depends on honest self-suspicion and truth, uh, both spoken in love and heeded. Christianity teaches that even our best motives come tinged with uh, self-interest. Called to be shepherds, we choose to lead by going first and somehow showing the path as possible in both hardships and joys. Uh, Orberg acknowledged that he wanted to express again my regret for not having served our church with better. Judgment. He confessed there's a broken story. It was hard for him and hard to watch, but also hard to imagine church lawyers had a hand in it. Uh, In his state, hard not to imagine, I should say. In his statement, he wrote, I did not balance my responsibilities as a father with my responsibilities as a leader. I wondered whether the concern should have been more about boundaries than balance. As shepherds of congregations, pastors' primary responsibility is care for their flock. Watching over, serving, being an example. A congregation's safety and well-being is paramount. Whenever the real strain of of ministry on families emerges, it must be focused on and addressed rather than balanced, which sometimes may mean handing over responsibility and leadership to trusted others for a season. This models faithfulness and love. Given his high profile and ministerial accomplishments, perhaps Ortberg felt he knew best at the time. We do not know of anyone who suffered abuse, but if there are victims, then our compassion should be firstly for them. Perhaps Ortberg sought counsel, but if he did, the counsel was misguided or even unheeded. Uh, If the counsel came primarily from loving friends, did their love discount the severity of the danger? Friendly counsel often supplies more, more support and even rationalization than the confrontation and rebuke that may be required. This is why I think it's always good to check in with a few detractors. They care less about your feelings and tend to shell out truth with no sugar. Uh, Thinking back, he says, uh, let me jump to the end. He says, uh, even in pieces, we are not cursed or unlovable or worthless. On the contrary, in Christ, to be broken is to be ripe for redemption by a crucified Savior whose body was broken for us. Orberg said he doesn't know what happens next or yet what he's learned, except that his story is broken. The late Catholic mystic Henry, uh, Henry Nouwen went so far as to equate being broken with being blessed. In a strange way, he wrote, the spiritual life isn't, quote, useful or successful, but it is meant to be fruitful, and fruitfulness comes out of brokenness. There's a lot there, man. What I'd just love to know your first take on this editorial about, about the John Ortberg story.
1: Yeah, I think it's well written. I, I It just reminds me again how bummed I am by this story. Like there's certain, too. I won't mention any names, but there certainly have been pastors in the past, that when they were removed or had to step down, the vast majority of us who were paying attention were like, yeah, we saw that coming. Like that just sorta mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that was that had been a train wreck for a while. With Orberg, I just never and I didn't follow him closely, you know, so like me, that feels a little tone deaf on my part to be like, oh man, I'm bummed by this story. We're like, yeah, but there was all sorts of other really complex mistakes made and people you know, put in harm's way and that kind of stuff. So, so please right. don't hear me say that I'm elevating like, Oh man, I'm bummed. I know that it's way, way more complicated and enigmatic than that. But it, it is interesting when he talks about not balancing his responsibility as a leader and a father. Yeah. I, I find that often a lot of pastors I know kind of f- flip it, right? Like it sounds like he's saying, man, I em- I emphasize too much as a father, not enough as a leader. Don't you find that often the, the opposite is the case? with the uh, the Western American pastor, Sadly. particularly male pastor, like yeah. they're working 80 hours a week and they're like completely neglecting their responsibilities as a father. I, I find that I find that uh, interesting. And I wonder if we'll see a trend in that way, but I, I, I like what he's saying about brokenness. I think he's right on. I do. And again, we've talked about this since day one on this show. So often we will acknowledge brokenness and then put people back into positions of authority right. and power way too quickly well before like the hard work of restoration is done and that's that's kind of what i what i hope for or here and, and i my my hope is it's my it's an honest hope that i think that he'll do the patient hard work of whatever is decided needs to be done but uh I, I hope that that's what we see
0: yeah what i struggle with here and i believe it to be true so when when you hear me say struggle don't be like i'm doubting it Uh, the author said in the line, pastors are sinners to be sure, but, but when we consent to our calling, we assent to a high standard public obedience atop pedestals and in fish bowls and on display, not for show, but as examples to imitate. Uh, I struggle with that as a pastor, if I'm just going to be honest, I believe it. So I'm not saying that he's wrong. Uh, but I don't know how you feel about that. This we're putting our lives on display and we are held to a higher standard. So often I'll be like, I'm just another person who happens to lead this church and I, but I do think the author, the uh, editorialist is right here. That's not actually what it means to be a pastor.
1: Yeah, and I think it is it is a fine line between recognizing the calling and the weight and responsibility and letting that veer into hubris or power sure. mongering. Like that, that, to me, uh, is part of why I think we've seen such a resistance to the acknowledgement of like, oh yeah, no, I, I do have a different weight here or a different responsibility. You know, I... My mentor used to talk about like a general in a war is on a horse. And so via via that vantage point, he can see the battlefield with a lot more clarity, but he's also a way easier target for the enemy. And he's like, that's a lot of what leadership is. You might be able to have a perspective that others don't have, but you also are a way easier target for the enemy. And so lead accordingly. And I thought that was that was always like a helpful analogy for me.
0: Yeah, so this editorial out of Christianity Today is up on our Facebook page. Go ahead and give it a read. John Ortberg and the pitfalls of pastoral discernment. Trying to learn from this painful story. What can we as pastors, we as leaders, we as churches learn from this painful story? Well, that's a painful story, so uh, let's end with some good news. That's how we're going to end the show, with some stories to put a smile on our face. That's coming up next year on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some... Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It is the end of the show, the end of the segment. Uh, and what we used to do, and maybe we'll go back at another time, is we used to do just strange, sometimes uncomfortable stories from the Internet. They made us laugh, usually. Uh, but we, uh, over the last couple months, especially with all that's been going on, uh, we've tried to delve into some good news from a, specifically a site called The Good News Network. And uh, just trying to give some levity and some uh, to leave you with a smile on your face. And so we're going to do some of the stories, however many we can fit in here from the Good News Network. And uh, Ian, I'm going to let you choose which one you want to do first.
1: All right. I'm going to do the first one. Ready? I ready. So from August 10th. So just yesterday, seniors recreate iconic movie posters for calendar that's raising thousands of dollars for Alzheimer's, and they're amazing. Again, yes, they are. If you realize you're just listening to our voices, you need to go look at this article. It's amazing. These seniors have been getting fancy with makeup and lights since long before COVID-19 spurred us all to creativity. In genius photo shoots, residents at the Spiritwood Assisted Living in Washington State have been recreating iconic posters from classic movies for two years now, and the results <laughs> are guaranteed to put a smile on your face. I concur. The idea... Transform seniors into Hollywood stars came to Jennifer Engel in 2018. She's the community relations director at Spirit Spiritwood at Pine Lake, her mission to combine unique, enjoyable activities for the residents with something purposeful, like raising money for others. For two years we've, uh, oh boy, my computer just went black. Here we go. Uh, for two years, we've dressed up. Uh, we dressed up the seniors as Hollywood movie stars and Village Concepts. A family company that owns the senior home produces the calendars for us. She told GNN, I photograph each senior after doing makeup, hair and costume. The best part is we all is that we sell each calendar and every penny earned goes to the Alzheimer's Association. There's a whole lot more on the history behind it. But like, what a what a perfect example of someone thinking outside the box and dreaming up something
0: that benefits everybody. I love it. And you've got to go find this because at the bottom of the article, they do some of the pictures. I can't figure out which is my favorite. There's Elf, Wayne's World. uh. Star Trek—they're uh, also good. This old guy doing Top Gun—it is so funny. Blues Brothers—I so would encourage people to read this because it is—it is really good. The next one: uh, drive-in movies are coming to Walmart's across America, and every showing is free. Whoa. Let the popcorn munching, soda slurping, and celebrity spotting begin. It says it's time to return to the 1950s and enjoy a film in the open air because drive-in movie screenings are coming free to Walmarts across the USA. If you've always wanted to catch a classic film on the big screen, the Walmart drive-in tour can make that happen in a socially distancing way. Best of all, actress Drew Barrymore will be there to virtually host each event. And at one surprise location, she'll even be there in person. Created in response to the coronavirus, 160 Walmart stores across the country are going to be hosting the drive-in movie nights until the end of October. The fun starts on August 14th, and this is no small initiative. Over the next few months, there'll be uh, 320 movies playing from coast to coast, from Houston, Texas, uh, to uh, Centella, Montana. Film choices have been curated by the Walmart's drive-in partner, the Tribeca Film Festival, so rest assured they won't be duds. Things like Friday Night Lights, The Karate Kid, Space Jam, E.T., Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, and kids movies like the Lego movie and Madagascar. I hope they do that around here. That'd be a lot of fun actually. Uh, PSA too, by the way, if you've not heard Gary Goldman, the comedian
1: Gary Goldman's bit on Karate Kid, it's incredible he i uh, love
0: gary coleman i've never heard that one.
1: Oh my goodness so you know gary Gallman. you gotta go listen to this clip i can't formally endorse it because i think there's maybe some adult language but um <laughs> i'll beep it yeah he, he sort of makes the case that uh daniel is actually the bully of the entire movie and that the cobra kai That's are the so victims good. it is uh wonderful okay uh, next one out of the good news network, goodnewsnetwork.org box of stained glass bought at auction solves 80 year mystery of church windows gone missing during World War II. That is a headline. A woodcarver who bought a box of stained glass at auction was shocked to discover he had unwittingly solved the 80 year mystery of the disappearance uh, from a church during World War II. Colin Mantrip, 63, purchased what he thought was a box of fragments of stained glass when it went up for auction, intending to use it to create original windows in his handcrafted doors. But when he arrived in July last year at Roseberry's Auctions in London uh, to pick up what was sold as a box of stained glass, he was shocked to find an eight-foot-long and three-foot-wide box which weighed over 600 pounds. Oh. <laughs> that's surprising. It was covered in dirt and so massive that he needed six people to carry it. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. I thought, this is an incredible amount of glass. I was delighted, said Colin from Bourne End, Buckinghamshire, for 300 pounds. That's pounds, right? I think so. <laughs> I thought I bagged a bargain and I didn't even know about its history. They're so beautifully done, which is normal from that era when there was such an incredible attention to detail. After spending a few months restoring and cleaning the beautiful uh, beautifully intricate and colorful windows, he noticed the words St Mary's inscribed in the glass and became curious about what the origins of the Victorian windows from the 1850s. It took it only took a quick search online to discover that some windows had gone missing at a once wow. thriving parish 80 years prior. He was stunned to discover that the pieces he purchased were actually the windows from St. Mary's Church in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, which had gone missing during the war in 1939. The majestic 20 by 12 foot Neo-Gothic East window, which shined down over the altar of St. Mary's, was removed to protect it from Nazi bombers. That is a wild story. And he tried to return them and they said, no, they had already replaced them. So he got to keep them. That's really, really cool. What would you do with them though? Like he can't, like he wants to, you you know, put these in his custom doors, but you can't use
0: those. No, no, 600 pounds. No way. Uh, Next one. Free internet coming for 35,000 low-income Philly, uh, Philadelphia families in public private partnership as classrooms stay closed. Philadelphia wants to ensure that all it's K through 12 students have internet access. So they have what they need to learn remotely during the pandemic. Since the coronavirus forced schools closure this spring, the city has been working with foundations and partners uh, fund to mobilize funding that will provide broadband Internet access for 35,000 kids. And this week, they unveiled the program that will make it happen. Uh, Phil Connected will connect eligible student households with two years of high speed Internet without any out of pocket expenses using Comcast Internet Essentials program or a high-speed mobile hotspot for families who are housing insecure. The program will also ensure K-12 through public school students have the devices they need, such as a laptop or a tablet, and also keep it all running smoothly. The article goes on to say this is a mixture of like the government, but also lots of businesses doing this. This is uh, an encouraging story.
1: Do I got time for this last one?
0: You do. That's why I went fast on that one.
1: Okay. Old toy horse left in trash. Becomes local celebrity with <laughs> villagers moving it daily from home to home. <laughs> this is another one like you have me. to kind of see in person. An old stuff toy horse left out on the pavement for trash pickup went on to a life of celebrity after residents of a small village in Norfolk, England, adopted him as their face mask wearing mascot. It all started about a week ago when a gentleman in what? what is that? Heatherset. He- Heatherset. Heatherset, who had recently lost his wife, was cleaning out his house. And the horse is one of the things he was throwing away. It is believed that some children picked him up and played with him, leaving him on a grassy knoll. The rest of the story is filled with the kind of whimsy we all need in this time of restricted community. At first, a lady posted on a local Facebook page asking if anyone had lost him. And obviously a lot of comments with horsey puns ensued. (laughs) The next thing we knew, uh, he got put outside someone's door, and she took him in and named him Derek Trotters. <laughs> President <laughs> Kim Rout, a reference to the character from an 80s TV sitcom, Only Fools and Horses. Derek has since trotted from home to home with villagers keeping track of his whereabouts on a Facebook group that Kim set up called Derek
0: Trotter, the globe-trotting Pony. <laughs> that is another one with it's great amazing. pictures of people at the it's something I picture you doing, if I'm going to be honest right there. You would have been right. This would have been right up your alley. right? Oh, 100 percent. The neighborhood that I
1: actually grew up in, we had something called the trash trophy. Our next door neighbor go. was a softball coach. And uh, whatever neighbor put out the most trash that trash day was awarded the trophy. And they were required <laughs> to uh, display it on the porch till the following week.
0: That is so good. Amazing. That is so good. Amazing. Well, we're glad that you joined us today, friends. Uh, again, you can find anything you missed on our podcast. Get that podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. We'll be with you again tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.